Welcome to ReachMD. This special edition of the Global Women's Health Academy series is sponsored by Topek Global and supported by Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to Clinical Decisions to Effectively Maximize Treatment Outcomes, presented by Dr. Marcos Horton, co-director and founder of Pregna Medicina Reproductiva and the past president, Argentinian Society for Reproductive Medicine from Buenos Aires, Argentina. This lecture was recorded during a live meeting held in Sao Paulo, Brazil. What I wanted to emphasize in this presentation is how we can interact with the, the lab in, in an integrated way to try to optimize the, the clinical results. And uh, there are a lot of uh, steps or issues in, in the process that can be uh, shared with the, with the lab. So we know from, from the results um, of, the, uh, of the Red Lara reports, this is a Latin American registry, that despite we have a lot of improvements in ART, in the lab, and, and in culture media, etc., and stimulation, the, the clinical results uh, are still similar. This is up to the year 2009, and this is implantation rate, and this is clinical pregnancy rate. But you can see here in the figures that it's pretty stable, and uh, that could be uh, in part because of aging population, we see uh, most of uh, the results are pretty stable along the line. Here is 2009, and this is the latest result. So another interesting thing is that ICSI results are going down because ICSI is, as I told you before, uh, I mean, using use of ICSI is widespread now and for different indications. So we used to have before better results with ICSI uh, because they were only for male factor and most of those patients, of the female patients, were young and healthy and they were pure male factor. So we have to uh, try to identify uh, each case to optimize results. We have to uh, study each case and try to uh, interact with, uh, with the, the whole process in the clinic to optimize results. And as we see, as we've seen before, this is a multi-step process. So every step of the way, we can do something to increase or to optimize the results. And uh, we can do something about ovarian stimulation. We can think about oocyte retrieval timing and uh, also about triggering. And a lot of things that can be done, as we saw before in, in the lab, to improve results. But this is a, an integrated process that we need to uh, do uh, as a team with, with a lab. And it also includes uh, what we saw this morning also with, with Sandro's presentation, because everything in the clinic is important, uh, not only the, the medical and the, and the lab uh, point of view. So if you see, if we start with ovarian stimulation, this is our own data from the year, a few years ago. And uh, you can see that is uh, this kind of bell-shaped uh, distribution is a little bit skewed to the left side. And this is what we all see. This is the number of eggs retrieved. And obviously, we have a big part of our population that are really uh, low responders. Even though now we have Bologna criteria that uh, it's 
up to three eggs, and let's say between four and 20 eggs would be a normal response. But you know, this is completely different having four eggs or having 16 eggs. So this is a continuous variable that we try to categorize into low, medium, or high. But we have to be a little bit more flexible than that. It is OK to have threshold values to define a population and to, to, to try to speak in the same language so we can compare results. But you have to have uh, the consideration that this normal population can be quite different between each other. So we have to try to individualize. So we have to make an effort to uh, see each patient uh, as it is, uh, a whole patient of its own, and with different uh, diagnoses, with different uh, couples. So we have to try to individualize. The first thing that we, we need to know, and, and I showed it before in my previous presentation, when you start, and it is irrespective of, of the diagnosis, and these are the main uh, markers. So we, we've seen in big epidemiological studies like Sunkara's paper, and over 400,000 cycles in the HFEA registry, the British registry, that the predicted life birth uh, in, in, is dependent mainly on the age of the patient and the number of eggs. So this is true for, for you see, any of the stratified age that you see there will give you a predicted life birth, and it depends on the age and the egg number, and it goes up to a certain number, and then it goes down because we also know that hyper-responsive patients and hyper-stimulated cycles have uh, less outcomes. And if you add up, and some of these patients will be able to cryopreserve, and so they'll have a, a better um, cumulative pregnancy rate. But you still have to see that if... If you, if you want a pregnancy, uh, a live birth around 25 to 30%, it will be different. In a young patient, you only need six uh, eggs, but you will need in a 35 to 37-year-old more than 11 or 12 eggs, and so on and so forth. In another paper, this is a Chinese paper uh, published a few years ago, you can see also the same situation that the number of retrieved eggs is very predictive of pregnancy rate. This is a live birth, I mean fresh, in one cycle, and the cumulative pregnancy rate. And you see how it depends on the egg number, and it also goes down after a certain number. Um, the pregnancy rate here was 69%, and we have to uh, consider that these were really uh, young patients and lean patients that were, had normal BMI. So this is another thing that we are having more and more information about. In all the registries, you can see that uh, BMI is an important factor. So it's another thing to take into consideration. I think that uh, probably the new nomograms will be able to add BMI because we know that the uh, um, overweight patients will be more resistant to stimulation. So we have age, we have ovarian reserve in terms of AMH or antrophological count, and we have also BMI to take into consideration. Other articles um, 
have uh, studied the, the, the daily dose of recombinant FSH. So we've seen this morning also, and there's quite uh, some differences between uh, all of us. Some, some of us uh, voted for the 150 or the 225, and some even higher than that. So uh, this uh, um, meta-analysis uh, compared 10 randomized clinical trials with different recombinant FSH doses, and it was quite a big number. And it showed that uh, when comparing a pretty low dose, 100 to, uh, versus 200 units, and 150 versus 200 or 250, you could obviously see that here the, the lower doses will have... Uh, uh, total uh, recombinant FSH lower and lower number of embryos cryopreserved, but they will have a similar chance of pregnancy and uh, obviously a lower a chance of OHSS. And these are pretty low uh, doses when you think in Latin America we are used to give higher doses, but probably in Europe they give lower doses because the uh, uh, reimbursement or, or coverage in general is, is uh, widespread in Europe and they can do some more cycles than we, than we do. Uh, when comparing 150 to 200 or 250, uh, again, the chance of pregnancy will be similar. They will have uh, more, uh, probably more eggs, uh, but you'll see here the difference, but in chances of pregnancy, they will be similar. There is a trend to a higher pregnancy rate because they can cryopreserve more eggs, but it, it's really near the, the, the one, um, the limit there. And uh, another paper meta-analysis of three randomized trials comparing low doses, you know, mild stimulation to conventional stimulation, also showed that uh, you, you see here the predicted implantation rate will be there near crossing the line between six and seven eggs, so and you'll get some better results with mild stimulation. So if you have to choose between a conventional stimulation blindly or a mild stimulation, uh, you can't do that. You have to individualize, so you probably have better results with a mild stimulation if it's a good responder or a normal responder, and you may need an, a different approach if, if you categorize a patient differently as a, as a poor responder but in normal responders, you will probably go better with a milder stimulation than a conventional stimulation. So we have to really uh, evaluate ovarian reserve and match it with age and maybe uh, BMI to inform prognosis. And we have to tailor stimulation using all these new uh, tools. And this, uh, this is the Edinburgh uh, study by Kelsey and what, what this shows, and, and recently we, it, uh, uh, my colleagues showed, is that uh, these uh, big academic centers will have a standardized uh, protocol and they will freeze all samples and then they will run them in the same. Uh, so the, 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 the variability, the coefficient of variability will be very low. So that's why they have consistent results and we don't see them in, in the clinical practice. But they have shown, obviously, that you have different percentiles of, of AMH values, and these are very important to, uh, to individualize treatment for these patients. But as I was telling you, I, I really uh, rely much more on enteral follicle count 
um, if I have uh, some doubts about the AMH level. So uh, it's, it's very easy to do. We all have an ultrasound in our office, and it doesn't have to be very sophisticated. You really have to pay attention to uh, the patient. And if you, if you want, you can repeat that uh, every, every cycle, and you will have a pretty consistent uh, measurement of the ovarian reserve. So this is what uh, uh, Paolo showed us uh, recently, and the dosograms that could prevent OHSS and predict response. And in this paper, Yates has shown that it's also cost-effective. They uh, um, analyzed their data uh, against a historical um, um, group of patients when they started using the tailored approach, and they not only showed that it increased pregnancy rates and uh, lowered complications, but they, it was also cost-effective in terms of uh, time to pregnancy and, and general costs. So it can be used, and, and it probably will get uh, better in time with other biomarkers. So you, you have a, a menu of uh, stimulation protocols today. I won't go through them because you can choose depending on the patient, using an antagonist or an agonist, even in low responders, we tend not to use agonists, but a lot of people use uh, agonist protocols, even in low responders. Uh, now, uh, I, the Brussels group and in, in, uh, the Polices group is doing a, a randomized uh, trial with testosterone in poor responders, and they're using uh, agonists for that protocol. So, um, this is really uh, not really established, but most of us will use an antagonist uh, protocol and uh, standard uh, with recombinant FSH and maybe adding LH if the patient is over 35. Some of us will use a mild stimulation, but you have to individualize and tailor the treatment for, the, for each patient. If you use a microflare, for example, I like using microflare for poor responders, and usually I add LH2, but you have to tailor for each patient uh, depending on, on her uh, assessment of her initial assessment. Another step of the way is the GnRH triggering. GnRHA, you probably use it for uh, high-risk patients or freeze-all protocols if you have a progesterone level of over 1.5 or 1.6 the day of HCG. Some uh, papers have shown that uh, it depends on, on your lab, too, because you know the progesterone uh, determinations can vary a lot between uh, labs, so you have to check your own levels. But between 1.5 or 1.7 um, will be probably not good to transfer that patient, and you have to freeze all. So that is another clinical decision that you can uh, um, uh, take at that time of triggering because checking progesterone levels the day of HCG is very important. Um, fertility preservation will also um, uh, allow you to give a GnRH triggering. And you have to have into consideration that GnRH analogs, agonist is, is a very, uh, has a half-life that is shorter than HCG and the natural LH cycle also. So if you're going to transfer, there are some protocols that uh, will help you out with a lute modified luteal phase. And uh, nowadays, there is the estrogen uh, replacement plus progesterone plus 
the bolus of HCG. But you, uh, we've also seen uh, the paper by the Humaidan uh, paper and the protocol using a 1,500 uh, units bolus, and still they have some uh, hype, um, OHSS in, in their data. So a lot of people are now trying other protocols, uh, diluted HCG, 100 uh, units per day, pretty um, stable apparently. Uh, the luteal phase, a lot of people are using the uh, uh, recombinant HCG, just a little bit of that. Uh, we don't know about that. I'm not sure if uh, uh, the company is aware of that, but uh, a lot of people are giving small doses of recombinant HCG, but we still don't have the data of how much is necessary for a luteal phase, uh, uh, correcting a luteal phase when you trigger with GnRH. But this is another clinical decision to discuss with the lab, if you freeze or if you transfer, I personally try to not transfer because we have good results, and I think that is uh, what everybody is experiencing. Why would you transfer if, if you really uh, can freeze them all and, and then transfer in, in another cycle and that is safe? But there are situations in that you may need to transfer anyway because the patient is from abroad or, or from another place and not nearby and some logistics that you need to uh, that you have to deal with so you probably will need to transfer some and you have some data now to do that and another interesting thing is uh, <clears throat> the timing and uh, when when you uh, give an HCG and this is hasn't uh, received much uh, attention and is curious because we always uh, uh, look at the the uh, the checkpoints and the timing as from fertilization, as from retrieval. And even though the time-lapse uh, papers are, are starting as from the T0 is when you inject an ICSI or, or put the, uh, or the, the sperm sample in IVF. But we have uh, really the, 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 the clock starts ticking when you give the HCG. So there are some papers uh, that have shown this, there's some previous paper, and there's a recent paper in 2015 um, showing what is it. The, they studied in an agonist cycle and in antagonist uh, cycles what was the interval between the HCG and the retrieval, and it could be less than 36 hours. Most of people are retrieving a little bit before 36 hours, maybe 34, 35, or 35 and a half. And we are almost, uh, we, we don't think much of retrieving after 36 hours, but they have shown, especially in agonist protocols, that the pregnancy rate is better if you wait for, if you mature the eggs in vivo and you don't compensate uh, with a, if you extend your in vitro culture before. Uh, ICSI or IVF, you can't compensate what, what the HCG uh, or the, the LH peak or the HCG peak will do for you in vivo. So we also have to look at this because apparently the closer you are to 36 hours or, or more than that uh, will be better for your, your embryos. And uh, they uh, did this also in less than 36 hours or more than six, 36 hours. You see there the difference and they divided if they uh, denuded the, uh, the eggs before two hours or after two hours for the exit procedure, 
and they found that that didn't compensate for, for the in vivo maturation. So this is another thing that you have to interact with your lab. And now we are analyzing this prospectively because uh, usually the doctor gives the ACG to the patient and the patient will be uh, doing that on time, uh, but not always the, the lab has that information and uh, when they ask for the information, it, it, it could be registered or not. So it's important to have that in, in your data. And, and the lab has to know that because there may be uh, some differences. And it's funny that there's no, no, not much papers talking about that. This is the only randomized controlled trial that is comparing ICSI versus IVF in a non-male infertility population. This was published in Lancet. Uh, more than 10 years ago by the group of Bhattacharya in, in England, and they compared in a randomized way uh, 224 IVF versus 211 ICSI, and these, this was multicentric. The implantation rate was higher in IVF, the pregnancy rates were also higher in IVF, and the workload time was shorter in the IVF group, and that, when the Cochrane review was done on all the papers that, that were comparing IVF and ICSI, uh, that was the only one selected. So that's a Cochrane review of only one paper, because the rest of the papers were not really well designed to compare IVF and ICSI, or they uh, have done the method of sibling oocytes, so it's not really a, a good design to compare clinical outcomes. So, uh, that depends on your uh, clinic and the setting you have, but it's another thing you have to decide with a lab. If you are doing ICSI uh, uh, in, as a routine, then you don't have uh, nothing to discuss with a lab, but if you, if you really want to uh, indicate ICSI in, in, a male in a male factor population or in some uh, different cases, you have to uh, know that in advance. You have to have your protocols and see uh, what are the threshold values that you will decide for IVF or ICSI? What we do is, is we have some uh, um, thresholds, but we see the, what happens with the sample uh, the day of, of IVF. And we look much more uh, in, on, on motility uh, than on morphology uh, in the previous sperm uh, samples. So. The other thing you have to uh, probably talk with the lab is if you're going to do assisted hatching or not. This is a big uh, discussion now. Uh, there's not clear data from the literature. This is also a Cochrane review. And there could be a slight increase in pregnancy rates, but there has to be probably in a special population of a recurrent implantation failure. We have to define recurrent implantation failure also as we have done the Bologna criteria for, for poor responders, there are some papers defining recurrent implantation failure as a, a certain number of transfer with a certain number of embryos, but uh, there's probably a slight increase in pregnancy rates uh, that could be uh, good for these kind of patients. So a lot of people uh, are having now with the lasers that they have for embryo biopsies, they are uh, trying, and we are doing a prospective uh, uh, study now with assisted hatching and recurrent implantation failure. The embryo transfer is a real uh, moment when, where you really interact clinically with the, uh, with the embryologist and the lab, 
and a lot of these uh, uh, factors go into the mix and you have to have a mock transfer before, that's obvious. You have to uh, transfer to the mid-cavity or, or divide it in three-thirds, whatever you use, but you have to be away from the fundus. You have to have, obviously, a U.S. guidance, and you have to be aware of the timing. You, you shouldn't go uh, um, after two minutes. That's not good for the embryo, so you have to time that and try to interact. And, and what we do in the lab is that we have the embryologist uh, classifying our transfer, and uh, she's very strict with all, the, with all the parameters. And this has been reviewed recently by Schoolcraft in, in fertility and sterility, and there's a lot of papers uh, with some tricks of the trade uh, about transfer, the transfer technique, the catheter choice, uh, and some of, uh, of Mansour's paper, for example, uh, trying to minimize expulsion rate by putting, placing the speculum and, and leaving it there for five minutes. Um, some people do it, some people don't do that, but it, we have to pay attention to all of these factors in embryo transfer. <clears throat> what we do is a mock transfer uh, during the workup uh, of the patients. Uh, we, we pass a soft catheter under ultrasound guidance, and if the passage is negative, we try with other catheters, and if it's still negative, we, we schedule a second appointment with an assistant with a, uh, uh, to see if we need uh, adjuvant maneuvers or anesthesia, instrumentation, etc. If it's still negative, we do a diagnostic hysteroscopy uh, to avoid a, a difficult transfer. So then the... The transfer protocol will be obviously a full bladder, depending on the position of the uterus, but they had to have some kind of retention, ultrasound guidance. The, uh, our assistant will check the mock transfer in the file. If, if there is no mock transfer for some reason, that they shouldn't be, but there are some times that they aren't. You perform a, a mock transfer up to an internal loss only the, during the transfer. And then we do a vaginal wash with saline and some uh, cervical loss washing with the culture media. The biologist checks the identity with the patient. That's the normal protocol. Then the biologist loads the embryo with a witness. The soft catheter is used. Usually we use the Cook echo tip. And we do a smooth ejection and a slow backup. And the total procedure should be less than two minutes. Then the patient walks out of the room and just uh, bed rest for 10 minutes. We classify into th four categories depending on the number of variables, but with time we've seen that m most of these can be grouped A and B together and C and D together, and it could be the difference between having uh, to change a catheter or not, or if C and D transfers are very uh, difficult transfers, and this is uh, probably uh, obviously with a catheter change also, or if the ejection is too fast, or you don't see the, the, the bubble there. So if you have blood in your tip, there will be C or D, etc. So what we did is compare, and obviously when you have a, an easy transfer, the pregnancy rates are higher than in the difficult transfer, so we try to uh, train all of our clinicians to uh, improve their transfers, and you can see that a long time, you, you will see differences. These are different, different clinicians, and they can go from 35% pregnancy rate. This is an ongoing pregnancy rate to uh, 
low as 19 or maybe less than that. This is another 25. They could be around 25 on average, but this is important to, for uh, quality control. And it could be a little bit embarrassing for some uh, clinicians, and you have to uh, get, get them used to the fact that they have to be uh, also monitorized. So to, to finish my presentation, the, the clinical decisions that you can uh, take uh, every step of the way would be first to tailor stimulation, uh, taking into consideration all the parameters that we've seen uh, in these uh, two talks to decrease OHSS occurrence and improve pregnancy rates. You can now use maybe those dosograms, use protocols mainly with antagonists because they are safer and they have been shown to be equal, uh, equally uh, effic efficacious, and you can have their equal pregnancy rates on almost 0% of OHSS. Important to check P levels on the day of HCG, and maybe freeze all, and uh, trigger with GnRH agonists when possible, when you have this situation, or when you have, obviously, egg donors, oocyte vitrification cycle, that is... Uh, much more uh, safe. Um, this will be uh, controversial here because everybody is doing ICSI, but I still uh, think that you can uh, do IVF when you don't need uh, ICSI, but uh, really it's going to be increasing the indication of ICSI with time because of PGS, because of use of frozen eggs or frozen sperm, etc. Probably schedule the, the retrieval exactly 36 hours or maybe more, even though that will produce some uneasiness in, in some clinicians. It could improve pregnancy rates, especially if you use agonists. Culture to the blastocyst stage, ideally, because you have more checkpoints to assess the embryo, and especially in male factor where you can see some arrest, embryo arrest, Maybe use time-lapse systems, like you saw this morning, that could improve uh, as an added marker. Established a real mock transfer and real transfer protocols because it improves pregnancy rates and, and, and the difference between clinicians. Maybe freeze-all cycles, still not clear from randomized clinical trials, and who will benefit. Maybe beneficial to do assisted hatching and probably offer CCS more and more because it will improve pregnancy rates and reduce time to pregnancy. Thank you very much. This has been a special edition of the Global Women's Health Academy series on ReachMD. The preceding program was sponsored by Topek Global and supported by Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. If you have missed any part of this program, visit reachmd.com slash GWHA. Thank you for listening.